Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another show in the Lost in Science Summer Series, in which we're taking a break from our normal program and instead we're playing some classic stories from the laboratory. Now this is a monthly event in Melbourne where scientists tell stories about their favourite science heroes. First up this week we have pathologist Claire Hansen with the story of Scottish anatomist and surgeon Robert Knox, who, well, you can decide for yourself whether he's a hero because he's best known for receiving and dissecting bodies from the murderers Burke and Hare. Following Claire is writer, actor and comedian Ben McKenzie, who'll be talking about Hedy Lamarr, the Hollywood actress and inventor whose ideas are the basis for modern Bluetooth technology and Wi-Fi networks. On with the show. Um, Dr. Claire Hampson. Uh, she returns by strong demand from the first laboratory where she told of the, the ungodly dedication of Mary and George Papanicolaou in developing the cervical smear. Um, she also thinks, she's not sure, but she might have discovered a new cyst that looks like peanut butter. She had a very visceral reaction to the cyst. Looks like pe- This is in the, in the role of a uh, pathology trainee, I should qualify, but looks like peanut butter, smells like old socks and maggots sitting in a bay-marie. Claire Hampson. Um, yeah, I was trying to garner uh, sympathy um, by describing a day at work which involved cutting open ovary and finding peanut butter inside. Um, yeah, do you feel sorry for me now? This is what I, this is what I live with, people. So, um, over the last few weeks, we've had some really fantastic talks about science heroes, about the people who um, have been passionate and changed the world and done wonderful things. And the last talk was, like, what an amazing guy. <laughs> I mean... Um, But I wanted to talk about a slightly different story. My story is about a man whose promising scientific scientific career was crushed by crime, actually by a series of crimes, which is still horrifying people today. I'm going to present the facts as they've been presented to me, and it's up to you here tonight to decide whether this man is a science hero, a science villain, or a science victim of circumstance. (laughs) Such a thing. He is a Scottish anatomist by the name of Dr. Robert Knox, or Dr. Robert Knox. (laughs) He was born in the late 18th century in Edinburgh from a respectable family, and notably, he was ugly. It was once written that he was as ugly as Jack Wilkes. Am I right? (laughs) Do you guys actually get that? No, I think it's been lost somewhere in the last 200 years. (laughs) Thank you for laughing anyway. Um, But to give you a picture, Knox had lost an eye in childhood from smallpox and had pitting and scarring over one half of his face. So we're kind of talking a bit like Dr. Evil, but with hair. Despite this disfigurement, uh, Knox was a very bright spark. Um, He was the top of his high school class, went to med school and blew them away with exceptional Latin and anatomy skills. After graduating, he left briefly to serve in the army before returning to Edinburgh around 1825. So just to orient you to 1825... We're talking Beethoven, 
actual, not the dog. We're a bit after Jane Austen, but a bit before Charles Dickens. And in the anatomy department at the University of Edinburgh, we are right in the time of the Monroe dynasty. The grandfather, Monroe Primus, had secured the role of anatomy professor about 100 years ago and had also managed to secure it for his son and his grandson coming after him. We were now up to Monroe Tertius and he held the position of ultimate power in the department. The truth is, after three generations, the lectures are getting pretty stale. So there were a series of other lecturers in Edinburgh who were accredited by the uni and Knox became one of those, private tutors. There was fierce competition for the medical students who were drawn there by Edinburgh's strong reputation. Luckily, Knox was brilliant. He didn't need notes, he just stood there and spoke. Students attended his lectures in droves. At one point, almost two-thirds of the university was attending his lectures, packing out the house. He inspired such men as Richard Owen, the man who would go on to invent the word dinosaur. <laughs> Amazing. But no anatomy teacher was worth his stripes without the demonstration of dissection. Knox needed to dissect for teaching and for research, to get publications to break into Monroe's club and ascend to that elusive university chair. Knox needed bodies. But back then, there were only two ways to get bodies, legally. The first was the death of a convicted criminal. Um, dissection was a perfectly acceptable way of disposing of the body, um, giving the society the benefit of it and, frankly, punishing them a little bit more for what they'd done. <laughs> the second was from the death of a person in a poorhouse uh, because they kind of thought that because the state had supported them for their lives, they kind of owed them something so they could donate their body to science <laughs> and, you know, that could repay the debt. And I'm not saying that was right, uh, but that's how it was. Unfortunately, these two events were few and far between and legal bodies were scarce. So if any of these bodies did show up if, along these, these methods, Knox would get, I mean, sorry, Monroe would get them anyway. He was the king. So in response to this mismatch of supply and demand, the practice of grave robbing emerged. It was a depraved activity undertaken by desperate professional thieves, low lives and anatomists. <laughs> Often with a group of their keenest medical students trotting along behind them. <laughs> so A-type, even back then. It was abhorrent and it was dangerous and it was thriving. There's no evidence that Knox himself ever went out looking for bodies to the graveyards. But it was known that if, perchance, a body should arrive at his rooms, he, like most others at the time, would receive them, pay for them and not ask who or how. Meanwhile... On the other side of the city, the poor side, William Hare and William Burke had stumbled across a problem. Well, multiple problems. Being impoverished, lower class and Irish, on the one side. And number two was a man named Donald, who was staying in William Hare's rooming house and unexpectedly died of natural causes two days ago, before paying the bill. Rude. <laughs> and now, William Hare had a body to dispose of, which was difficult, inconvenient, and cost him even more money and he wondered if there was a better way. So his friend William Burke, his very good friend William Burke, helped him with a solution. Pre-empting Indiana Jones by 156 years, they opened the coffin, replaced the body with a similar weight of tanning leather, shut it again, and then sent it off to the funeral. 
They then headed off to the university, avoiding all the shooting arrows and rolling boulders, obviously. <laughs> and then they're looking for Monroe, you know, giving Monroe the body. But he'd already gone home, and they were directed to the rooms of a certain Dr Knox. He examined and approved of the specimen they provided, and his assistant paid them the very nice sum of seven pounds and ten shillings. Unaware that this was far less than a Scottish person would have got for the same body, they were overjoyed! And with a cadaver to dissect at a bargain price, the staff of Dr Knox were equally delighted. At this point, mind you, Burke and Hare hadn't actually done anything wrong. Legally, their only obligation was actually to adequately dispose of the body of Donald, um, to not leave it in the street, essentially. Um, but it's clear that they did feel a bit wrong. And this is my absolute favourite part of the story, is that they tried to give fake names um, when they went to the uh, assistant. And it played out a little bit like this. And you, sir, are... Don't say William, don't say William, don't say William, don't say William. John! Fine. And your friend is... Don't say William, don't say William, don't say William. William! Oh! <laughs> Oh, what are you going to do a thing like that for? Oh, no. William, you gobshite. You'll not be doing any more of the talking. Shh. So John and William, not clever men, um, ended the transaction, and they, as they left the um, surgeon's rooms, they were told, and I quote, that the surgeon would be glad to see them whenever they had any other body to dispose of. Some of you know where this is going. <laughs> um, yeah, not such a great thing to say to these two men because they found another body to dispose of. Only this one wasn't dead. <laughs> um, he was a man staying in Hare's house and he was very unwell. He was close to dead and perhaps they thought this was close enough to mercy. Burke laid on top of him, compressing his ribcage while Hare smothered his face with a pillow until he stopped moving. He was delivered to the rooms... No questions were asked. Money paid. It was far too easy. Next, Burke's de facto Helen and Hare's wife helped to lure a young woman to their home. Burke and Hare plied her with whiskey, smothered her to death and took her body to Knox. <laughs> then the group started targeting travellers, people without local connections, a passing Englishman, an old woman, three young women, a grandmother, a grandson who came looking for her, more women, old and young, even a disabled teenager. This isn't funny, this is true! <laughs> Fifteen murders in all, all the same. It had been nearly a year of this when, by chance, a couple who had been evicted from their rooming house the night before returned to pick up their stuff and found a body of the woman who they'd drunk with the night before concealed under the bed. Um, they immediately went to the police, but they were too late to discover the body in Burke and Hare's, uh, sorry, in Hare's house, but they attended Dr Knox's dissecting rooms and discovered the awful, awful truth. The public, understandably, reacted with an enormous backlash against Burke, Hare and Knox. Knox was depicted as the learned carcass butcher in the papers, even facing a burning effigy in the streets. He maintained his composure and statements of innocence to his students. Um, he was known to have said, the connection of my establishment with the late atrocities, however accidental, is a very serious misfortune, insomuch that, although utterly unconscious at the time of anything wrong having been done, Yet the very recollection of these shocking occurrences must be ever painful to me. He was even backed up by Burke, who swore that Knox never suspected or knew. There was a full investigation into Knox's involvement, concluding that there was no evidence that Dr Knox or his assistants knew that murder was committed in procuring any of the subjects brought to his rooms and firmly believed in his complete innocence. 
utterly unconscious. I don't know, do you believe him? <laughs> in his defence, he wasn't um, forensically trained and he wasn't really examining for injuries or a cause of death when he was um, dissecting these cases. Um, and if you, if you weren't looking for a cause of death, the fact that 15 people had shown up without a reasonable cause of death probably wouldn't have attracted uh, your attention. But 15! <laughs> I mean, come on. Oh, all from the same guys, all with no obvious illness, and so fresh. I mean, some of these guys would have been warm. <laughs> oh, no, Scotland. Some of them would have been, like, tepid, <laughs> slightly lukish. I mean, they clearly weren't getting them from graves, and it's very unlikely that Birkenhair had that many sick relatives. I mean, Knox is a smart guy. Why didn't he ask the question? How were John and William coming across so many deceased? Should he have tried to find out? Or did he wonder, deep down, but fear the answer to the question so much he couldn't even voice it? Or was he so blinded by ambition he couldn't even see? Despite being cleared, the damage was done. Knox kept teaching, but never received the post at the university that he so desired. In his later years, he turned towards comparative human, human and animal anatomy and wrote, by all accounts, a fantastic paper on salmon and herring. <laughs> he was a supporter of Darwin. He also moved into the field of anthropology and um, unfortunately made a few nasty racial generalisations with a very dubious relationship to the anatomy that he was basing them on. Um, he's copped a bit of flack recently for that, but... He also wrote some very lovely books on art. <laughs> By the time of his death, at age 71, Knox was a very well-known man. And in case you're wondering, he was buried whole. <laughs> Unlike William Burke, who was convicted for murder, hung and dissected by none other than Bertha Monroe. He wins. <laughs> he wins. He wins. Every time. And I shouldn't but I can't help feeling a sense of justice that Burke's skeleton and death mask are currently on display at the University of Edinburgh's Anatomy Museum for all to see. William Hare and his wife weren't convicted as they had flipped and given evidence against Burke, but they were chased from place to place by an outraged public and required multiple secret relocations by police. Similarly, Burke's de facto Helen was chased around and it's rumoured that she made her way here, all the way to Australia. <laughs> Don't worry, she'd be dead by now. <laughs> or would she? <laughs> no, she definitely is. So now it's time for your choice. I borrow a phrase from Pennsylvania Press when I ask you, how will you remember this man of science? Dr Robert Knox. A gifted speaker and scholar? The boy who buys the beef? A villain or a fool? through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop... Lost in science. And to finish up the night, we are very happy to have back Ben McKenzie, a writer-performer whose solo work has always had a scientific flavour. His current projects include the final season of an improvised adventure show, Dungeon Crawl, 
an a city-wide interactive theatre game based on Julius Caesar with pop-up playground and Bell Shakespeare called hashtag True Romans All, which will be coming somewhere around Melbourne in October. And also the sci-fi comedy audio series Night Ter- Terrace, in which he will star alongside Neighbours star Jackie Woodburn. He also works as a voiceover artist, presenter and actor. His favourite dinosaur is the Stegosaurus. Ben. Thanks very much. Um, I just want to apologise for everyone watching on Twitter. I'm, I'm sure that I misheard Sarah earlier and I tweeted that it was Gertrude Elliott that you were talking about. I'm pretty sure that's the wrong name, so please give me an angry correction if you're watching the Twitter stream. Uh, but she did mention, when she was talking about Gertrude, whatever her actual last name is, sorry, I was sitting at the back, um, that one of her favourite quotes was about torpedoes. And that kind of leads into what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, I always start when I talk... I've, I've, done, I've been privileged enough to be here at the Laboratory once before, and I feel because I, the company that I'm in that it's important that I admit to you that I am not a qualified scientist uh, in any way. In fact, I usually refer to myself as a scientician, which is a word that I made up to make sure I don't get sued under the Trades Descriptions Act <laughs> when I talk about science in public, uh, which I try to do fairly often. Um, But tonight I do want to talk about one of my all-time science heroes who, ever since I found out about her and started learning about her life, um, is just one of my favourite human beings who has ever lived. But I'm going to start with a question. Who here has got a smartphone? Show of hands. Okay. Uh, Who's got a dumb phone? That's what they call them now. You know that, right? Don't feel bad, though. Yours all outlast ours for (laughs) order of magnitude. Uh, Anyone got a Bluetooth device currently on? I'm wearing one because I live in the future and I'm a nerd. Um, and we, li- yeah, we live in the future. Now, you might not realise it, but all these devices only function in part because of the work of a Hollywood star who lived in the 1940s. Her name was Hedwig Eva Maria Keisler. And no, she wasn't an owl and she wasn't a drag queen. <laughs> Although Hedwig is a good name for both. She was born in 1914 in Vienna. She was the only child of a pianist from Budapest and a banker from Lemberg, which was a city in Poland at the time. Now it's got a different name and it's in the Ukraine because it was Eastern Europe. You might have heard of her by her more famous name, Hedy Lamar. And while parts of this story might seem fantastic, I guarantee you I have made none of this up. Although some of my sources might, it's fair to say. But as far as I know, this is all true. Hedy began her film career when she was just 15, and almost from the beginning, uh, she was controversial. When she was 18, she appeared in a film called Ecstasy. This was a Czech film. It was directed by a man named Gustav Makati. The title alone was pretty shocking in 1933, but its subject matter went even further. Hedy played a young woman who married a much older man, but left that passionless relationship and sought... Well, the clue's in the title, really. Uh, ecstasy. And, and, you know, this was 1933, so we're not talking about any illicit substances that chemists might or might not make. Now, this film was scandalous because it showed images of her swimming and running through the countryside naked. But despite the fact that it's often cited as such, this was not the first motion picture 
to have a nude scene. That happened about 20 years earlier because, you know, we're human beings. And when we invent a new media, we find a way to make it about sex. But this is a landmark that that film does actually have, a record that it really is responsible for. And I think this says something about Hedy Lamarr as a person and her beliefs and passions. Ecstasy was probably the first non-pornographic movie that depicted sexual intercourse and particularly a female orgasm. Although in those scenes you only saw the actors' faces. It was 1933. And um, the fact that you only saw their faces is how you know it was non-pornographic, right? Her first husband was named Fritz Mandel. He was the third richest man in Austria. He was a munitions manufacturer, and he was a prominent Austro-fascist. Despite the name, Austro-fascism has nothing to do with Nazism. Instead, it's rather a sort of a cross between Italian fascism and political Catholicism, which was a big deal in the area at the time. And these guys, the Austro-fascists, they disliked Marxism, they disliked liberal capitalism, they disliked Western democracy. They're pretty hard to please, essentially, in like anything. Now, despite the fact that the sex in the film Ecstasy was entirely simulated, and apparently it was simulated by the director helping, but only by poking Hetty in the bottom with a safety pin... Her husband, Mandel, felt it was exploitative of her, even though she was into it and doing it on the film. And supposedly, the story goes, he tried to buy up every print in existence of Ecstasy, even the one owned by his fascist buddy and munitions customer, Mussolini. Mussolini wouldn't sell his, and you can still find the film today. And as that last story might suggest, Mandel was a controlling, jealous husband who put a stop to Hedy's film career and kept her virtually locked up in a castle. No, that's true. A castle. The castle was their home. It was called Schloss Schwarzenau. It was built originally in the 12th century and in 2001 it went up for sale and was valued at 5.1 million euros. I told you she lived a life that you couldn't believe, right? Now the castle was also the venue for lavish parties, including ones attended by her husband's good buddy, Adolf Hitler. And one of the few reasons Mandel let Hetty out of the place was only so she could accompany him to conferences to discuss military technology. And this was how she was exposed to applied science and engineering. Now, there are some sources, and I couldn't verify this, that describe her as a mathematical prodigy, but I have no idea if that's true. But what we do know is that when she started to learn about engineering and applied science, she found it fascinating. And she was smart. She got it. She picked up stuff. And having learned a bit of stuff, she decided she'd had enough of her abusive husband. And the story goes that she persuaded him to let her wear all her finest jewellery to a dinner. And then she disguised herself as her own maid and fled to Paris. And from there she went to London. And in London she met a famous film producer called Louis B. Mayer. He had of course heard of her because whilst the most famous film and most successful film in 1933 was the original version of King Kong, everyone was talking about ecstasy. But the problem was that nobody really called her by her name. She was known at the time, more or less universally, as the ecstasy lady. So he told her to change her name when she auditioned to work in Hollywood films and a star was born. She had five other husbands She made 26 films in Hollywood over the next 20 years. She didn't put her career on hold, even briefly, when she was having her three children. And she earned a new nickname, 
the most beautiful woman in film. And it's said that her profile was the most requested one to plastic surgeons in the 1940s. But honestly, who cares all about all that stuff? Let's get to the sexy science part. In 1941, Hedy was at a Hollywood party and she met a man named George Antheil, a German-American. He was an avant-garde composer and a character with a life almost as exciting as Hedy Lamarr's. He experimented with automated musical instruments. He faked his own disappearance to help publicize a performance. He collaborated in mysterious ways with experimental filmmakers, including the famous Man Ray, wrote a mystery novel under the pseudonym Stacy Bishop, and in a magazine column, supposedly accurately predicted the development and outcome of World War II. His best-selling autobiography published in 1945 was titled Bad Boy of Music. I think you can see why the two of them got along, right? Now, Hedy and George had a passionate discussion about protecting United States radio-guided torpedoes from any enemy interference, as you do. But, you know, it was a Hollywood party in 1941. Everyone was talking about the war. But these guys were smart. And so they started talking about the problems actually faced, the technological problems faced by Allied troops, and particularly torpedoes fired by United States ships. They realised they might be able to fix this problem. And the story goes that Hetty scrawled her number in lipstick on the windshield of George's car so they could develop their ideas further. Now, torpedoes were controlled by radio signals so they could be steered towards their targets. This is part of what made them such a deadly weapon. But at the time, they used simple, single-frequency transmissions, which could easily be blocked if the enemy could work out the frequency being used. Now, together, George and Hetty came up with the idea of frequency hopping, This meant changing the frequency transmitted to the torpedo so that the signal couldn't be blocked by a single frequency interference signal. The trick was that the frequency had to change frequently, try saying that five times fast, unpredictably and preferably have a large number of possible settings, but it couldn't actually be random or the torpedo wouldn't know how to receive the signals. Their inspiration came from the player piano the ones with piano rolls in them that play themselves, they could make a transmitter that would use a punched paper tape to hop between 88 different frequencies, because there are 88 keys on a piano, in an unpredictable fashion, since it needn't be based on a numerical or logical sequence, and could, although as far as I know, this wasn't part of their design, uh, be based on a piece of music, though what APRA would have to say about that, I'm not sure. Installing a similar system in the torpedo would allow it to know which frequency to receive. It was a genius idea. And on August 11, 1942, the pair were awarded US patent number 2,292,387. They patented a lot of things in America. And in fact, uh, I I didn't get a chance to look this one up, but if you ever get a chance, look through the US patent archive. It is full of some of the most amazingly ridiculous things you have ever seen. But despite the genius of this patent, the US Navy didn't like it and they didn't use it. At least, they didn't use it in World War II. But they did use it in 1962, during the blockage of Cuba, when the patent had expired. (laughs) I should hasten to add, they didn't actually put piano rolls in torpedoes, though. They used a slightly more sophisticated plan in 1962. Now, there are other similar patents along pretty similar lines, uh, including one registered by Nikola Tesla in 1902. But it's Lamar and Anthil's work that is most often cited as the important basis for what we now know as spread-spectrum communication technology. 
that no one ever used piano rolls, the basic idea of a prearranged pseudo-random sequence that determines how a signal is spread over multiple frequencies or there are other related techniques that use other means, it's still used today. For example, in the 802.11 Wi-Fi standard, which your Wi-Fi router uses at home, it's used in Bluetooth. It's used in CDMA, which is that older mobile phone technology which is largely being phased out pretty much everywhere except in the United States. Hedy Lamarr's involvement might still not be well known, but it might have gone entirely unheralded if not for the work of Dave Hughes. No, not the Australian comedian, Dave Hughes. A different Dave Hughes, a previous award recipient and online activist based in Colorado. Now, his previous award was due in part to his online campaigning, and it came from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who in 1997 honoured Hedy and George with a special award presented at their sixth annual Pioneer Awards. And when told she was being officially recognised for her part in creating a world-changing technology 55 years after the fact, Hedy Lamarr reportedly said... It's about time. (laughs) In Hedy's later years, she was arrested for shoplifting twice. She reportedly had much trouble with money, although she claimed to have calculated that in her lifetime, during her career, she had earned and spent more than $30 million. She sued Mel Brooks for using a parody of her name in the film Blazing Saddles. She sued software company Corel for using an image of her on the box of its popular CorelDRAW software. Does anyone remember when software came in boxes? Both successfully, although the negotiation was never disclosed. She died in the year 2000, at the age of 85, from heart problems. And her ashes were spread by one of her sons in the Vienna woods. But I like to think that every day, transmitting from thousands, if not millions of devices, we are all surrounded by the legacy of Hedy Lamarr, who surely is the only person who could find a way to top being the first woman to simulate an orgasm on film. Thank you. That's it for this summer edition of Lost in Science with Tales from the Laboratory. Now, the Laboratory is a live event you can catch at the Spotted Mallard in Brunswick. Details and tickets can be found at thelaboratory.com. Lost in Science, though, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter or you can catch podcasts or previous shows on the 3CR website or on iTunes or you can listen to us on the radio when we get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.